0: We're going to continue to worship the Lord with our gifts and our tithes and our offerings. And uh, today, the thing I want to highlight is Radiant Church in Jackson, Michigan is turning three years old today, which is incredible. I remember their very first service was a preview service. You know, they do those things, and it was I think it was January 11th or 14th, three years ago. And that was the day we got 14 inches of snow. And so there was a, a couple of us that went out there, and we were the only people, not a part of the launch team, that showed up. And it took us like four or five hours to get home. But from that first meeting to what we've seen now, um, man, I was just talking to Mike, the pastor there this week. And in these three years, uh, they are now running over 400 people a weekend. What God has done there is amazing. The stories of people who have received salvation, life, freedom, hope, marriages, restored physical healings. It's just absolutely incredible. And we were able to um, put money into them to help them start because it's actually pretty expensive to start a church. So thank you for your generosity and look at what God is doing with that. And we're excited. There are more Radiant Churches going in with Marco Salazar in Bay City this year. So we're going to continue planning Radiant Churches and being a part of that. So thank you for your generosity so we can continue to see Jesus made famous all over our area. So Father, as we give back to you, we're so grateful. And God, we pray that uh, you would continue to pour out your blessing over Radiant Church Jackson. God, that you would fill the leadership team there with wisdom. God, that you would fill the people with your presence and that you would continue to lead them more fully into the fulfillment of the call and the vision that you have for them. Thank you that we are able to partner with them. And Jesus, we just pray that the city of Jackson would be completely and radically changed because you have come. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. And a quick update, too, on us. Uh, Hopefully this week we are getting our closing date on our new building. Uh, So hopefully next Sunday I'll stand up here and I'll be able to tell you all when our first service will be and uh, the week that we're going to need all of your help to get going on that. But God is moving. We got our chairs on Monday I took Jared down and we got 350 chairs from Radiant Church uh, in Kalamazoo. So I'm incredibly grateful for their generosity. It's getting real. Our backs are sore. We are getting close. So more updates to come soon. If you have your Bibles with you today, would you turn to Luke chapter 1? And we're continuing in our series. You would think it's on Luke chapter 1, but we're actually going through the entire book of Luke somehow. Uh, and the idea behind it is that we all know something about Jesus, right? Right? Uh, whether it's you just know that there was a guy named Jesus or uh, whether you've been a part of a church your whole life, we all have some ideas of who Jesus is, what his life was about, what his teachings are, but a lot of that has been shaped by the culture that's around us. A lot of it has been shaped and influenced by other people. And what we want to do is come and say, Who is Jesus? What were his teachings? What was his message? What was his life about? And how is it that now we've been called to live our lives in light of who Jesus is? And so we're just going through the book of Luke and we're investigating who Jesus is. We want to know for ourselves. We don't want to rely on other people, uh, our parents, our friends, our culture, in your pastors that you've had. You don't want to rely on any person to tell you who Jesus is, you just want to come straight to the source and let God speak to you and reveal himself to you as we investigate Jesus. And today, we're going to be going through verses 46 through 55, which is actually a worship song that Mary sang. And it's kind of funny that I'm sitting here today and I'm teaching on a worship song, because for most of my life, uh, and all, all through my early years um, growing up, going to church every single week, I did not like singing worship songs in church. Uh, maybe some of you can relate to how I felt about that. But for me, it was, uh, you know, growing up at a small Methodist church, it was never my style. Uh, it wasn't what I was into. It's not what I would listen to on the radio if I were at home. It was always too quiet. I like my music loud, and so it was too quiet for me to be able to engage in it. I didn't know the songs. You know, they're singing out of three different hymnals. Like Turn to page 482 in the brown or the blue or the green hymnal. And so you sing a song once in your lifetime if you're lucky out of these books. So I never know what the songs are. Uh, there was never enough guitar. As a guitar player, you know, that's what I wanted to hear. And since we didn't have a guitar player, there was never enough guitar in the mix for me. And then I always wonder, like, why are people raising their hands? There was these couple of people that would raise their hands while they were singing their songs. I'm like, do you have a question? Because this is a really inappropriate time to ask a question. I don't think they're actually going to answer you. Why do you have your hands up? So I never got worship. I never engaged in it. And the reason why I didn't engage in worship wasn't because it wasn't my style. It wasn't because it was too quiet or it was too loud or I didn't know the songs. It wasn't because people were raising their hands and that was distracting to me. It was because I didn't understand what worship is. That's what it all boils down to. And the word worship itself comes from this old English word, worth-ship, which means uh, an acknowledgement of worth. So worship is an ascribing worth and value to God. That's what we do when we worship. It's You're just ascribing worth and you're giving value to something or to someone. And when we come here as a church and we're worshiping, what we're doing is we're saying, God, you are the one who is of supreme worth and importance. You are the one that our hearts and our affection are poured out to. You are the most valuable thing that we have ever found. You are the most valuable thing in all of the universe. God, we are just so grateful to have found you or to have been found by you. And now we want to tell you, how much we love you, how important you are to us. That's what we're doing when we're worshiping. But in everything that we do, we are worshiping. It's not just the singing the songs when we're at church. Every decision that you make, every thought that you have, it's really all an act of worship because you're ascribing value and worth to something with every decision you make. If you decide that you're going to go to Taco Bell, you are ascribing worth and value to intestinal distress. It's like, you are worth it. I'm going to do this. Um, Any decision that you make is because you're saying that there is value in this, so I'm making the decision to continue to increase the value of this thing in my life. And for most of us, if we're completely honest, most of what we worship is us. We make decisions because we see ourselves as being very valuable. We see ourselves as being of supreme worth and importance in the universe. And what would happen to me is I'd be sitting there in church, you know, in this Methodist church that I grew up into, and I'm sitting there with my arms crossed and I'm not engaging in worship because what I wanted to do was for them to worship me. I wanted them to meet all of my personal preferences for what this worship time should be. And if they would do that, then maybe I would bestow my blessing upon them by, you know, maybe kind of half raising a hand like, did I wear deodorant today raise? I'm not sure. And if they weren't playing the songs that I liked, if it wasn't the right volume, if the lighting wasn't how I wanted it to be or whatever, then I acted like the offended deity that just stood there and I was like, I will not bestow my blessing on you rebellious people who refuse to worship me. That got quiet. (laughs) Because we've all been there, right? Because sometimes we go into worship and we think it's about us. But we got to remember this. When it comes to worship, we're the worshipers. We are never the worshiped. We come to ascribe value and worth to Jesus, not to come and demand that everybody else ascribes worth and value to us. If it, if it has to be that the lighting has to be right, the songs have to be right, uh, you know, all of that stuff has to be just perfect for us to be able to engage in worship, then we're not really worshiping Jesus. We're worshiping ourselves, and we're worshiping our own preferences. And I had this big awakening to this, um, gosh, I think I was 16, 15 years old, and I was in Mexico, and I was on this mission trip. It was my first one. And we're in this little, tiny, it's a pavilion. It's not even a church. It was a church, but it didn't have walls, so I'm not sure how you qualify that. And it had a cement floor. There's no walls. There's just a roof, a cement floor. There are cockroaches like crawling around and little lizards and stuff. And the band's sitting there playing, and their musicianship was subpar, Uh, The environment is not great. The sound system was just absolutely terrible. And the words, I have no clue. I had one semester of Spanish at that point, so the only thing I knew how to do was say my name, ask where the bathroom was, and I could recognize that they were making fun of me. I had long red hair, so they called me Pelo de Fuego, gringo, ha, 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 and that's like all I understood of what was going on. (laughs) So I have not a clue what they're singing about. The environment's terrible, the musicianship's bad, the sound system is awful. But for the first time in my life, my heart was just broken. For the first time in my life, I raised my hands in worship and I had tears in my eyes. And I was so aware of the presence and the goodness of God. And I couldn't do anything but worship at this point. So what had happened? What was the difference? And what had happened was I'd spent an entire week just focusing on Jesus I went there and I was staying with the poorest, most impoverished people that I had ever encountered in my entire life. And I was serving them. And daily I was seeing God move and work in me and through me and in the lives of these people. And I was exposed to just how good, how great, how holy, how perfect, how loving and merciful and just God was. And it was in response to that that I came and it didn't matter what the environment was like around me. It didn't matter what the songs were. It didn't matter that I didn't know what anybody was singing I was able to really engage in worship in a life-changing and powerful way. And the only difference was that I'd had an encounter with Jesus. Now, is there anything wrong with having a distraction-free environment? No. No. There's a reason we don't let people play tambourines during worship because like, everybody's gonna start playing tambourines and there's gonna be kazoos and triangles and it's just gonna be a mess and nobody's gonna, it's just gonna be so distracting for everyone. I have one person say, is it okay if we're up and down the aisles? I'm like, no, it's all stairs, you're gonna fall and die. And it's gonna be really distracting for everybody else. We don't want distractions for people because we want them to be able to focus on Jesus and his worth and not be like distracted by what on earth is going on around me. Did that person just die on the steps? So we don't want distractions. Uh, Is there anything wrong with using technology to create environments? No, no. I'm so grateful that we have lighting and it creates moods. I'm grateful for a sound reinforcement system so you guys can hear stuff. I'm very grateful for all of those things. Is there anything wrong with having a worship set where you know all the songs are in your language and you actually like them? No, there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. I would hope that that's the way that it is. But there is something wrong with us needing our preferences to be met in order for us to be able to engage in worshiping Jesus. And that's what it comes down to. When you encounter God in all of his beauty and all of his glory and all of his goodness, then it doesn't matter what the songs are. It doesn't matter what the volume is. It doesn't matter what the language is. You're just going to come before Jesus and say, you are so worthy. You are so valuable. You are so loving. And everything I am, my entire life, Jesus, it's all for you. And then number two, worship is a response to who God is and what he's done. If you're here and you haven't encountered God, then no matter how much you try, you just flat out won't be able to engage in worship. No matter how much you want to even. I'd say it's kind of like this. If you're a normal person, it would be like trying to engage and getting excited about Olympic curling. Like You can go to an Olympic curling match and there's one person that's really offended by that. Sorry. <laughs> Only one. And you can go to the match and you're like, okay, I can appreciate that these are good curlers. They're really good at brushing the ice. Uh, I can appreciate that they've worked really hard to do this. They're doing this with some excellence. I can appreciate that the DJ's playing all the right tunes you know, to get the crowd pumped up. I can even appreciate that people are getting engaged and they're getting excited. There's parents there and they're just rooting their kids on and excited about curling. But you won't be able to do that. You might be able to join the chants. You might be able to try to get involved. But if you're just not into curling, like it doesn't matter. You're not going to get into it. If you haven't experienced and encountered God's goodness in your life, then you can come to worship and you can appreciate, wow, they do a good job with the technology. The band's pretty good. You can tell that. I can look around and I can see other people are really engaging in worship. You might even say, hey, I'm going to you know, raise my hands a little bit. I'm going to sing along with the songs i gonna get down on my knee. I'll you know, poke myself or think about my beloved dog that's passed and you know try to work up some tears. But you won't ever be worshiping. You can go through these motions, you can do these things, but singing the song, raising the hands, that's not what worship is. Worship is the expression of our heart, telling Jesus how good He is, how valuable He is to us, how much worth He has in our lives. And if you haven't encountered God in His goodness, you will never be able to do that. Because worship is always a response to what it is that God has done. It's a response to who he is. And it says this, actually, uh, as we begin in verse 46 of Luke chapter 1. It begins by saying this. Mary responded. That's how worship starts for Mary. That's what is setting up this song that she's about to sing. She's gone, remember she's the pregnant unwed mother. Uh, she's going, she has God is growing inside of her womb. She's, you know, this miraculous angelic visitation explaining what it is that God's going to do. She's blown away by it. She goes and tells her cousin Elizabeth. And Elizabeth says, "You're blessed among all women, and all the world's going to be blessed through you" and all of these really incredible things about who God is and what it is that God is going to do through her. And then what happens is Mary responds to that. There's no angelic choir that's singing. There's no great band that's playing. There's no lighting you know, that's, that's going on that's causing her to worship. It's who God is and it's what he's done. And now worship is the response to that. Everything that Mary says after this is all a response to what God's doing in her life. It's all a response to who she has found God to be and what it is that God is going to do through Jesus. And she begins by saying this Oh, how my soul magnifies the Lord! How my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. So when she begins to worship, it starts out with this Worship magnifies God. Mary's first response to who God is and what he's done. Is to magnify him. And that word magnify, what it means is to increase honor, to cause something to be held in greater esteem. It means to uh, conceive something as being physically enlarged. It means to cause something to become larger through praise. So what Mary is doing is she's consciously choosing to focus on God, to magnify, meaning I'm going to enlarge who you are and the honor and the glory that I'm giving you in my life. Here's a little illustration I want to show you. We have this picture up here. I took this, I was out this winter, and I noticed one of my irises was coming up, and I was like, oh, you stupid plant, you're fooled by the warm weather. And I took a picture of it and texted it to my parents. I'm like, hey, look, spring's on the way, and this is December or something like that. And if you look at this picture, you get an idea of what this is a picture of. But what happens if you begin to magnify something in this picture? Let's see the next picture. See, I've magnified an area of it, and now all I see is the dead leaves. I had this the same picture, but now I'm choosing to magnify, I'm choosing to focus in on something, and now I see something more clearly, but something is also excluded from the picture. Now I'll show the next picture. I could also choose that I want to choose to magnify on the plant itself. And now you're not you know, seeing all of the death and the leaves and a reminder of what has happened or the season that we're in. You just see this hope of it's spring. There's a new plant that is springing up out of the ground. And what, as I magnify in on this, there's something else that's excluded from the picture, right? This is the way that it is with God. With every situation that we find ourselves in, you choose to magnify something. You choose to focus in on something. And what you magnify in your life becomes bigger in your mind and the other parts of your life become smaller or even out of view. Mary's making this decision. The reality of her life is that she's an unwed pregnant mother. She has a fiancé who's going to dump her when he finds out. She lives in a culture where she could be severely punished for this, and uh, even if she's not physically punished, there's going to be incredible uh, verbal abuse and ostracization and other kinds of words that are really slaughter when I'm trying to say them. But what she does is instead of focusing on this, because this is way before MTV, MTV made it like cool and lucrative to be a, a teenage mother, is she says, I'm going to focus on who God is and what it is that God is doing in my life. And as she does that, the consequences of the reality of her life begin to shrink and they begin to diminish. And God is magnified in her life. And when you do that, you as you continue to increase God's presence and give him more glory and more honor and focus in on him, make him bigger in your life. Then what happens is you begin to be filled with peace, you begin to be filled with hope, and you begin to be filled with faith for who God is and what he's going to do. And the problems that you have, though they still exist, they become smaller and smaller to the point of where you don't even see them anymore. Doubt in your life begins to shrink and decrease. But if she had chosen to focus on the negative, the inconvenience of this, began to focus on where the consequences of this going to be to me, then what she does is she magnifies those problems and excludes God from the picture. Then you begin to become filled with worry, with grief, with doubt, with anxiety, because you're not looking at who God is. Actually, what you're doing is you're painting for yourself a prophetic vision of the future minus the power and presence of God in your life. But in everything you do, you're going to magnify something. And when we come to worship, what we do is we choose to say, God, I'm going to magnify you. I'm going to make you bigger inside of my life. And the natural result of that is other things in our life begin to become much, much smaller. There are two very different outcomes that we can choose in life. And it's all based on what it is that you choose to magnify. You're going to choose to magnify God, and be filled with peace, be filled with joy, be filled with faith, or are you going to choose to magnify the problems that you find yourself in and begin to minimize God and his plan for you and be filled with worry, with fear, and anxiety? What you choose to magnify chooses what's going to become big in your mind and what's going to be excluded from your mind. When we worship God, We do so by magnifying him. It says that one of the things, one of the ways that we magnify is through praise. When we come here and we worship and we declare God's goodness and his faithfulness, we make him bigger by doing that. So worship is magnifying God. And then magnifying God causes us to rejoice in him. Mary says, I'm magnifying you. And then she says that my spirit rejoices in God, my savior. That word rejoice means extreme happiness, elation, to be extremely joyful. Now, what is it that makes you elated, that makes you extremely joyful? Uh, What is that? What makes you extremely happy in your life? It might not be being in church on a Sunday morning. If that's the case, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm doing the best I can. But there is something that you get excited about. There's something that fills you with joy. In our city, let me tell you what, if we ever beat Ohio State again, like, it's going to be the happiest day in Ann Arbor. People are going to be fist bumping. They're going to be cheering. They're going to be going nuts. Like, we might start burning couches. Maybe Michigan State's on to something. Who knows? But like the town is going to be elated. It's going to be joyful. People are going to go crazy if we beat Ohio State again. It might be that you don't care at all about football, but if... Uh, you know, a publisher's clearinghouse showed up at your doorstep with a $10 million check, you'd be screaming and you'd be dancing around, you'd be high-fiving everybody. You would be elated. You would be extremely joyful. You would be rejoicing. We all rejoice about something. But here's the problem. Even if we beat Ohio State, they're going to beat us again. And then we're going to be sad, sad puppies again. (laughs) Even if you get that $10 million dollars, you're still going to get old and sick and die. (laughs) Happy Sunday, everybody. (laughs) It's all about our heads. We're done. (laughs) Because beating Ohio State and getting a whole bunch of money doesn't change the real problem that we have in life. The real problem that every single one of us faces, whether you're rich or poor, whether your team's good or bad, whether you have privileged status, whether you're an oppressed person, it doesn't matter what it is, the one thing that we all have in common is that we're a people who are going to die, and we're going to die deserving hell. That's the reality for every single one of us. It doesn't matter if your family's awesome, your kids are great, your career is great, you have money, wealth, power, status, none of those things are the real problem that we face. Our problem is, is that we deserve hell when we die, and every single one of us is going to die. And that's the problem that God came to solve through Jesus. Because though we deserved death, though God's justice is for our sin to be punished, for us to get what we deserve, that's what justice is. God can't just suspend that because then he would be unjust. So his plan was to come down for jesus to take on human flesh to enter into a womb to be born just like all of us are to live as we live our lives but to live sinless and to go to the cross where god's justice could be satisfied as he paid the price for our sins and he took the penalty that every single one of us deserved and in doing that the real problem that we all face has been solved Now when we die, we go to better place. We have the hope of the future that these bodies that are, that are getting old, I'm losing hair and gaining weight and getting sore from sleeping. Like, what's happening to me? But someday, I'm going to have a perfect heavenly body that will never get sick again. I will have no temptation to sin. There will be no sorrow. There will be no pain. There will be no death. There will be no messy human interactions with each other. There will be no oppression. It's going to be perfect. This is what Jesus has restored for us. And so now it doesn't matter. Hey, is your family messed up? That's okay. Are you poor? That's okay. Mary, she was still a poor peasant who was pregnant was going to have her her fiancé dump her and all these other terrible things happen to her. But, She says, I rejoice, I'm elated, I'm extremely happy because God has provided salvation for me. He fixed the biggest problem that I have. Every other problem that I have is insignificant in comparison because every other problem that we have is very, very temporary in light of eternity. And this is when we read through the New Testament. And Paul's writing to people, and he says, Hey, are you a slave? Like That stinks. In heaven, there is no slavery. That's going to be put away someday. But even now, the kingdom of God has come to you. The real problem that you face has been solved. Are you poor and oppressed? Good news, the kingdom of God has still come to you. Are you rich and all of these other things? He says, my kingdom has still come to you, but you need to start getting in line with the call of the kingdom on your life now. Our status and our position, the problems that we face in life, those aren't the greatest problems that we have. They're the problems we're most distracted by. They're the problems that we spend our entire lives trying to solve and we completely forget and put out of mind the real problem that we're all facing. It's that we deserve death and hell. But Jesus came so that we could have eternal life, so that we could have the blessing of God. And that's why Mary, in the midst of her circumstances, which aren't great for her, this isn't the life that you would choose for yourself or you would want for your kids, but in light of this, she says, I'm gonna magnify God and in Him my soul rejoices. I'm extremely joyful, I'm happy, I'm elated because of God and He's brought me salvation. It doesn't matter where you find yourself today? Because when you magnify God, you begin to rejoice, because He has provided salvation for you. That's why so many of the songs that we sing, it's about salvation. It's about that Jesus did go to the cross for us. It's that He's brought us new life. It's about the hope and the future that we have. This is what Mary's focus is on. And it's what we put our focus on. We can rejoice. Had a bad day? Have terrible things happened to you? Got a bad diagnosis from the doctor? uh, Did your marriage fall apart? Whatever it might be. That stinks. That's not what God wants for you. That's not a part of the kingdom of God that is to come. But even still, we can rejoice because your biggest problem was solved. Jesus has brought you salvation. And then she continues on in verses 48 through 50 it says for he took notice of his lowly servant girl and from now on all generations will call me blessed for the mighty one is holy and he has done great things for me he shows mercy from generation to generation to all who fear him and so we rejoice because a holy god has blessed a lowly people when she describes herself as lowly that word means unimportant and humiliated This is what Mary, the mother of Jesus, the woman who's blessed among all women, says about herself, is that I'm unimportant and I'm humiliated. But God, he's holy. He's just. He's pure. He's perfect. He's of supreme worth. There's no one else that is like him. And he's done something for me. What she's saying is, I don't deserve what it is that God's done. When I, I remember when I asked Anna out, it was, I, it's hard to like, hey, will you go out with me or will you be my girlfriend? You're trying to figure out how you want to, you know, try to enter into a relationship with someone. It, it was so tough back when I was a kid. And I remember when I was like, hey, I have a big crush on you. And she's like, oh, I have a crush on you. So I'm like, okay, so are we like in a relationship now? Yeah, I think we are. And so that was, that's our story. It's not great, but it's our story. But I remember it was after our first date and dropped her off. Like, I walked her to the door, and then I walked back to my car, and I'm, like, dancing. I'm, like, so happy. I'm, like, I can't believe it. Like, Anna, she's incredible. She's beautiful. She's the nicest person I've ever met. She's so encouraging. She could encourage the worst person in the world. And, like, she, she wants to be in a relationship with me. Like my only concern is her judgment. Like, why is she dating me? Because she's so incredible and I'm so not as incredible as she is. Like, is there something wrong? Does she have a tail like I don't know about? So I'm <laughs> trying to figure out why she wants to be with me. But that's that experience. Did you, hopefully you had that with the person you're in a relationship with. And if you're married, hopefully you still feel like that somewhat. But we need to, that's, we need to understand that's how it is with us and God, but to a whole other level. Like, We rejoice because I'm Unimportant. I'm humiliated. The state of my life, my sinfulness, how messed up, broken, and fallen I am, I am not worthy of God's love. I am not worthy of His salvation for me. There is no reason why He should do what He did for me. And we can't ever lose sight of that. We don't deserve God's love, we don't deserve His mercy. There's no reason that Jesus should have gone to the cross, been beaten beyond recognition, nails through his hands and his feet, pierced in his side. It says that he was separated from God. There he says, God, why have you forsaken me? This is God himself. Part of the Trinity has always existed, always been a part of this relationship in the Trinity. And when he took on our sins, which there's no reason that he should have done that. We didn't earn that. We didn't deserve that. He took our sins on himself, and when he did that, he experienced separation from God the Father. Worse than all the physical pain that he went through was when he identified with us and what it's like to be separated from God. None of us could ever deserve that. We're unimportant, we're humiliated. We deserve that death. But he came and did it for us. Just like Mary, we were lowly. There's no reason why God should have brought us salvation. But he did. And part of the way that we worship is always acknowledging how incredible God is, how perfect, holy, and just, worthy of praise and adoration he is how unworthy we are but yet he's blessed us the lowliest of people and then in luke chapter 1 verses 51 through 55 she wraps up her song with this his mighty arm has done tremendous things he has scattered the proud and the haughty ones he has brought down princes from their thrones and exalted the humble he has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away with empty hands. He has helped his serve in Israel and remember to be merciful. For he made this promise to our ancestors, to Abraham and his children forever. So she's saying is that we worship God because he is so faithful. Mary ends this worship song by connecting what God is doing with what it is that he promised he would do. See, God's salvation, even though it might be something that you have recently become aware of, it's a part of a plan that was put in place before there was ever sin. Before you ever existed, before this world ever existed, God knew that you would rebel against him, that you would be worthy of death and hell. And even before that, he had made a decision and he put a plan in place to save you. And we see the story unfold when we see the fall of man in Genesis. When God says, this is what happens now to you, this is the result of sin entering into the world and you making this choice to rebel against me is that there's going to be death, that there's going to be a curse that's over the whole world. He says all of these things, but he makes the first promise in Genesis chapter 3 when he says that there's going to be enmity between you and the son of the woman and that he's going to crush your head as you bruise his heel. And what that was speaking to was that there would be a son who would be born to a woman, this is speaking of Jesus being born to Mary, who would come and he would crush the head of, the, of Satan. What that means is to destroy the power of Satan. And Then we see through Isaiah, when Isaiah prophesies that God's going to send the Savior that's going to be born of a virgin. Then we see Jesus be born. We see him go to the cross, just as God had spoken of. And we see all of these things happening. And it's all coming into alignment because no matter how faithless we might have been, no matter how we might have run from God, no matter the things that we might have done and might have been done to us, God still had a plan that he'd put in place that he was going to be faithful to. That's why I was talking about that, you know, he's brought down those who are high and sent the rich away hungry. It's not saying that Jesus hates people that have power and wealth. We see examples of people of power and wealth in the Bible that are lifted up as examples to us. But what it's speaking to is that everything that Satan is doing to try to keep you from God's plan of salvation is being utterly destroyed. When you look at what happened in the Exodus... There were princes who tried to oppose God's plan. They were brought down low. There were rich who tried to oppose God's plan and keep us from walking into that. And they were sent away hungry. While those of us who were following after Jesus, even in the desert, he brought miraculous food to us. Every system, every power structure, everything that Satan is doing to try to keep you from receiving from God this plan of salvation for you, it says that God is utterly destroying because he's so faithful That what started out as a promise to Adam and Eve, we then see come to Abraham where God says, I'm going to make you a family that's going to bless all the nations of this earth. This one family becomes a nation Israel that becomes a kingdom of priests that are supposed to declare God's goodness to all of the world. And we see Jesus come and enter into the human condition as the Savior, the one who comes from Eve, through Abraham, through Israel, to bless all of the nations. And now all of us have been brought into this family that God has been preparing for himself from before the world was ever created. And all that we have to do to enter into this family is to begin to worship Jesus. We say, Jesus, you are worthy. And I'm not. But I'm going to make decisions to worship you with my life not just when we're here and we're singing our songs, but every decision that we make, I'm going to say, God, I'm going to be obedient to you because in being obedient to you, I'm showing you that you are of more worth and value than I place on myself. Every decision that we make is an act of worship, either worshiping Jesus and saying that you are worthy, you have all value, or saying that we are worthy, and we're going to spend our life serving ourselves. God's created you for more. He wants to bless you with his own presence. He wants to bless you with new life inside of you. He wants to bless you with plans and purpose and promise. He wants you to be adopted into his own family. He wants you to have an encounter with him that forever changes your life. So that just like I was when I was in Mexico in that that little tiny church, I had this revelation of God's goodness I was just broken before him and everything changed for me. Let's pray this morning. Father, would you speak to our hearts? What is it that you're calling us to do? Would you reveal your goodness? Would you reveal your love? Would our eyes be open to seeing just how worthy you are This is a question I think to ask is who are you worshiping? Are you worshiping Jesus? Are you worshiping yourself? Have you encountered God? Because if you haven't, you'll never be able to worship Him. And how will you respond to God? Maybe it's that you need to make that decision that you want to follow after Jesus now. From this day forward, you want to receive his forgiveness. You acknowledge your lowliness and you submit yourself to him because he's worthy. When you do that, you say, Jesus, forgive me of my sins. I believe that you are God. I want the new life that you have for me. From this day forward, I'm following after you because you are worthy. Maybe it's that you made that decision once, but you're far from him now and you've really been living a life for yourself. And then it's that time to come back and, and to repent and say, Jesus, I'm sorry, but I'm coming back to you. I'm recommitting my life to living as a disciple and following after you and everything you've called me to. Maybe there's some something in your life that God's speaking to you about and he's showing you that there's some area of your life where you aren't trusting him. Maybe you're magnifying a situation in your life instead of magnifying him. And he's calling you to put your eyes on him. Maybe it's that he's speaking to you that you haven't really been viewing him as being of supreme worth, supreme value. And this morning he's calling you to see him as he truly is and to worship him. God, would you speak to every heart? Would you bring life? Would you bring peace? Would you bring joy? God, would you be exalted? Would you be magnified? in our lives. I would Radiant Church be known as a church filled with people who are worshipers and who live their entire life as an act of worship submitted to you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.